welcome to City Breaks London, episode 13, Chaucer and Shakespeare's London. I'm Marion Jones, this is City Breaks, we're halfway through a long series on London. Actually, that might be a very precise statement, I think there are going to be 26 episodes, so episode 13 is indeed exactly bang on halfway. If you're new to us and wondering what City Breaks is, well, we're visiting, in this case, London, quite slowly, quite carefully going round all the main places you'd like to visit on a trip and looking at the culture and history behind them to inform your visit, or possibly just for general interest if you're not going any time soon. Comments always welcome. Do leave a review on iTunes or somewhere for me to find. I'd like that. And perhaps it would give me some encouragement or maybe some ideas. OK then, Chaucer and Shakespeare's London. The two of them being not only our two greatest writers, but, more importantly in this context, both very much London-based. People whose works tell us quite a lot about the London of their day, and people for whom traces can still be found in the city today, if you know where to look. OK, so I'm going to start with Chaucer. Now this is slightly ambitious, because even I have to admit there isn't a great deal of actual Chaucer still to be seen in London. I have got a couple of recommendations, but bear with me, I do think he's part of the fabric of the city and I don't want to leave him out. So, we are going back to about 1365, when Chaucer was born, into a London which had possibly between forty and 50,000 inhabitants. The London he knew had the Tower, had St Paul's, not the current version, but a previous one. It had some very busy docks. There was East Cheap, where the goods which came in via the docks could be bought and sold and traded. There was Cheapside, more shopping, more everyday shopping really, food, drink, that sort of stuff. And with at its centre a grand street for tournaments and civic processions, perhaps the Lord Mayor would come along occasionally. Also a place where people would be hanged or put in the stocks. And just to give a flavour of the City of London as Chaucer knew it, here are a couple of little extracts from a book called Chaucer, written by Peter Ackroyd. He explains that a bell would ring an hour before sunrise, which was the end of the nighttime curfew, and then, quote, The wickets beside the great gates of the city were opened, and through the darkness trailed in the petty traders, the chapmen, the hucksters with baskets of gooseberries or apples, the journeymen, the labourers and the servants who lived outside the walls, in the crowded and malodorous suburbs which were the city's shadow. A page or two further on, he describes some of the sounds that you might hear. Quote, The greetings upon the street at any dawn would have seemed beneficent enough. God save you. God give you grace, God speed, good day, a clear day. Mixed with these greetings, the cries of the street sellers would already be added to the clamour and shouting which accompanied the start of each day. Twelve herrings for a penny, hot pies, good pigs and geese, ribs of beef and many a pie. Chaucer was a Londoner. He worked in lots of different positions, in the English royal court, for example. He was sent as an ambassador on foreign missions. We know, for example, that he went to Italy. He was an MP, and he was clerk of the King's Works for many years. And all of this before we get to his writing. We don't actually have any manuscripts dating from Chaucer's own lifetime. The earliest ones appeared more about 1420, so 20 or so years after his death. And so, as Peter Ackroyd explains, he wasn't really, first and foremost, a poet. He puts it better. Quote, He was not a poet who happened to be a diplomat and government official. 
he was a government official and diplomat who, in his spare time, happened to write poetry. And, of course, the very best known of his works is the Canterbury Tales, a huge variety of short stories, really, where you can meet all sorts of characters who give us an insight into the London of his day. This variety of people meet at an inn in Southwark, and they are planning to go together on a pilgrimage to Canterbury. On foot, of course, so it's going to take a few days, and to while away the time, they're all going to tell stories on the way. I looked at a wonderful website called british-history.ac.uk, which outlines a whole selection of Chaucer's characters and explains how they were exactly the people you might meet in the London of his day. The knight, for example, who one might any day meet in the reign of Edward III, perhaps in Bow Lane or Friday Street, riding perhaps to a noble's house to pay some money that he owed, or to initiate a lawsuit because somebody's done him wrong, and how he may perhaps have, quote, come from Anatolia, where he has smitten off many a turbaned head, so that tomorrow he will start to thank God for his safe return at the Shrine of St Thomas in Kent. There's a description of the yeoman, the sort of man it says you might see a dozen of in a ten-minute walk through Cheapside. This particular one is, quote, sturdy, a brown-faced country fellow, quick of quarrel, and not disposed to bear jibes. We get a description, he's wearing a coat and hood of Lincoln Green, and he has a sword, dagger, horn and buckler by his side, and a sheaf of arrows in his girdle. All sounds very violent. There are merchants and shipmen and a poor Oxford clerk, who thinks of his books only and has no money and is terribly thin. And then there's the prioress, described as, quote, ambling through Bishopsgate from her country nunnery, on her way to shrine or altar. Her wimple is trimly plaited, and her cloak very fashionable. I enjoyed the description of the merchant who apparently will be talking much of profits and exchanges, and the necessity of guarding the sea from the French, between Middlesbrough and the Essex ports. Ah yes, plus à change. But in the description of the shipmen we discover that the English were no angels either. This particular one has brought many a draught of Bordeaux wine, and he's said to know, quote, all the havens from Gothland to Cape Finisterre and every creek in Brittany and Spain. So that's just a little flavour of Chaucer and Chaucer's London. Two places where you can, open quotes, find, close quotes him today in London, are, firstly, the Tabard Inn, sort of. Sadly, the original inn was demolished in 1873, what were they thinking? But the square in which it stood is still there. It's in Talbot Yard, off Borough High Street. And if you get there, you'll find a blue plaque on which is written site from which Chaucer's pilgrims set off in 1386. Inns like this one were a very important part of medieval Southwark, which wasn't governed by the City of London, but made its own rules. And so an inn such as this one, in that time, would have been filled with criminals and drunkards and prostitutes. Perhaps you could have seen some bear baiting or some cockfighting in the courtyard. But because it stood on the main route to Canterbury out of London, it also attracted Christian pilgrims who would meet there before setting out on their annual visit to the Shrine of Thomas the Becket in Canterbury Cathedral. Chaucer knew that. That's why he started his story right there. In fact, just to prove the point, here are four lines from the Canterbury Tales. I can't pretend I can do the accent, but I'm going to read it as it's written. Befell that in that season on a day, in Southwark, at the tabard, as I lay, ready to wenden on my pilgrimage, to Canterbury, with full devout courage. 
so he's imagining himself waking up in the inn on the day when he's setting out on his pilgrimage and thinking about the journey ahead and all the people he's going to meet. And secondly, you can find in Westminster Abbey the place where Chaucer is buried. So he was living in the grounds of Westminster Abbey because of his job, and when he died in October 1400, it was decided to bury him at the entrance to the Chapel of St Benedict in the South Transept. As his reputation as the father of English poetry grew, people decided to pay him more homage. A marble monument was set up by another poet, Nicholas Brigham, in the 16th century. Unfortunately, it was later destroyed, but we do have some idea what was written on it. So there would have been the red and silver crest of Chaucer himself, and there was an inscription, which translated from the Latin reads as follows. Of old the bard who struck the noblest strains, great Geoffrey Chaucer now this tomb retains. Chaucer was in fact the first writer to be buried in the abbey, and the reason was really because he lived and worked very close to it. But it set a tradition going, because in 1599, when the Elizabethan poet Edmund Spencer died, he asked if he could be buried near to his great hero, Chaucer. This was done, and that was really the beginning of the idea of a poet's corner. And if you listen to the episode on Westminster Abbey, you will know that lots and lots more poets have followed suit and been buried there too. So then, let's now wind forward over 150 years from the death of Chaucer to the birth of Shakespeare in 1564. As you can imagine, there's lots more to say about him, and in fact much more trace of him to find round and about in London. London had grown massively. By 1600, there was a population of about 200,000, and by 1650, that had doubled again. So it was busy, it was crowded, people were being forced to move out of the city walls into surrounding areas, including Southwark, that being the area most associated with Shakespeare, and the place where you can find the Globe Theatre today. Southwark, as I mentioned, was a liberty, so outside the control of the City of London's government, and therefore a centre for all sorts of goings-on. Much of the land was owned by the Bishop of Winchester, which you'd think would be a help, but oh no, we know that the church authorities tolerated the fact that there were lots of brothels built on their land. I think they cheerfully just accepted the rent. One description of Southwark at this time, which I came across, reads as follows. Full of brothels, inns, gaming houses, animal baiting arenas and theatres. So think of that to get a picture of the area. Think riverside warehouses, coaching inns, dark alleys, dark deeds. We know that there was an area known as the Bear Gardens, just a little walk from the Globe, which is an amphitheatre set up with seating for up to a thousand people to go and watch dogs fighting or bears being baited and have a bet on the outcome. We have a description of a visit to one of these arenas written in 1562, so a couple of years in fact before Shakespeare's birth, but I don't think things had changed very much by the time he got there. So here's one Alessandro Magno visiting us from Italy who is describing the entertainment he witnessed one Sunday afternoon. First they take into the ring a cheap horse and a monkey in the saddle. Then they attack the horse with five or six of the youngest dogs. Then they change the dogs for more experienced ones. It's wonderful to see the horse galloping along with the monkey holding on tightly to the saddle and crying out frequently when he is bitten by the dogs. After they have entertained the audience for a while with this sport, which often results in the death of the horse, they lead him out and bring in bears, sometimes one at a time, 
sometimes all together. But this sport is not very pleasant to watch. We know that sometimes things went badly wrong. In 1583, for example, a stage collapsed during a bear baiting and people were killed, many more were hurt. At the time, one John Dee wrote in his diary the following. The godly expound it as a due plague of God for the wickedness there used and the Sabbath day so profanely spent. So into all of this came Shakespeare from Stratford-on-Avon in the Midlands. The details of his life are pretty sketchy. We know that he was born in Stratford in 1564. We assume he went to the grammar school there. There's no actual proof of that, I don't think, but he obviously was very well educated, was well read, and so it's assumed he must have attended the local school. We know that he married in 1582, Anne Hathaway, that they had a daughter, Susanna, six months later, and twins after that. And that's about it. There's a seven-year gap before he pops up writing and acting that we don't really have great detail about. It's thought that the most likely explanation is that he will have joined one of the travelling acting troops, made his way to London, and started on his career. We do know that he was an actor in London and a playwright, that he was a shareholder in an actor's troupe called The King's Men, and that he was the part owner of several theatres. So a businessman as well. We know that he became wealthy and successful. He bought property both in London and in Stratford. We know that his plays were very popular and successful. People flocked to see them. The king liked them. King James II is said to have liked the Merchant of Venice so much that he asked the actors back two days later to perform it all again. In the days when Shakespeare was first acting, the performances would take place perhaps in the courtyard of an inn or in a nobleman's house, anywhere where there was some space for the play and for the audience. But in 1587, so when Shakespeare would have been in his early 20s, England's first modern theatre was built, the Rose Theatre in Southwark. We know that Shakespeare acted in this building, and we know quite a bit about what it looked like. The building itself was 14-sided, the stage was open air, and it was surrounded by wooden galleries. Some seats were more comfortable than others, and therefore more expensive. Food and drink was served to the audiences during the performance. Perhaps about 500 people would stand in front of the stage to watch the performance, and lots more, perhaps two or three times that, would be seated in the galleries. We know that Christopher Marlowe's plays, Dr Faustus and The Jew of Malta, were both performed there, as were some of Shakespeare's plays, Henry VI Part One for a start, and Titus Andronicus. It was a successful theatre, until 1599, when a rival turned up. The Globe Theatre was completed in that year, became very successful, and a few years later, in 1605, the Rose closed. It more or less disappeared and was never heard of again, until 1988, when the foundations were discovered by accident during some building works. I think they were building a bank or an insurance company or something, but there was a big campaign by actors and theatre lovers to say, Please, 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 let's save what we've found. So, in the end, they incorporated what they had found into the site, and you can visit it today. You'll find it in Park Street, which is between Tate Modern and Southwark Bridge. Quite easy to find on a map. So then, the Globe. There's an interesting story to how that came to be built. So we know that beforehand, Shakespeare was acting in other places, and that he and some friends had built their own theatre, in Blackfriars, so across the river, 
But the problem arose that the landowner decided he didn't want to renew the lease, and so the actor's livelihood was severely under threat. So they took action. They clubbed together, sold some shares in their new venture, bought some land on the other side of the river at Bankside, and deciding that actually they may not have owned the land in Blackfriars, but they did own the theatre, Shakespeare and friends or co-criminals or whatever you want to call them, crept along, this is on the 28th of December, 1598, in the dead of night, dismantled the theatre and carried it piece by piece across the river where they rebuilt it on the new land that they just bought. Problem solved. So the new building wasn't 14-sided, it was 22-sided. It had a thatched roof, it had room for about 3,000 playgoers, as they were called, so that would be the groundlings, the people who stood in front of the stage, and all the people who would be seated in the galleries banked up around. There was a backstage area, something called a tiring house. That's linked to the English word attire, as in clothing. So that was the word for the dressing rooms and possibly the place to store the costumes as well. So this turned out to be a really good idea. It became popular. It did really well. Lots and lots of plays were performed there. In the periods when the theatres weren't closed because of the plague, there would usually be two performances a day. I read somewhere that a calculation had been done that one third of London's adult population at that time saw a play at least once a month. Things were getting a bit more like theatres today, but there were certainly massive differences. For example, the play scripts. There was a play script, but they weren't printed whole, firstly because printing costs were very high, and also because if you did print the whole thing, there would be the risk that someone would steal it, or an actor perhaps would sell it, to another theatre company, and they would be able to benefit from your work. So actors were only given their own lines. There were no curtains, there was very little in the way of scenery or props, but the costumes were important, elaborate costumes very often, to the point where there was a rule for actors that if they were found wearing their costume outside the theatre, they would be fined. And on the subject of actors, they were all men. All the female roles were played by men too, often by the younger men or the boys in the cast. And so you can begin to see how it was that Shakespeare decided to have a lot of fun with cross-dressing and the idea of men playing women, or even men playing women who then had to pretend to be men for the purpose of the story, and so on. So the Globe Theatre opened in 1599, and the very first play to be shown there was Shakespeare's Henry V. And in fact, there's a little hint of all of this in the opening lines of the play. So excited was he by owning his own theatre that he decided to dedicate the first few lines of the prologue to the idea of theatre-going itself. The first actor on stage begs pardon from the audience for, quote, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. So is that Shakespeare calling himself a flat, unraised spirit? The unworthy scaffold is presumably the stage, and he goes on to explain. It's only a little piece of wood. Can it then become all sorts of other things? Or, as he puts it, can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? And the answer, of course, is nope, they can't. You're going to have to use your imagination. So that's play going in a nutshell, and praise indeed for the little wooden O, which is going to become all those other scenes, if only you will suspend your disbelief. If you ever find the atmosphere at the beginning of a play 
these days, rather hushed and expectant. I think you have to get rid of all those notions when thinking about the theatre in Shakespeare's day. There are some wonderful descriptions of the globe itself in a book called, in fact, Globe, subtitled Life in Shakespeare's London, written by Catherine Arnold. So here she is on the sort of people you could expect to see if you went to the theatre. Quote, Gallants in stiff frilled ruffs and huge hats decorated with feathers, jewels dangling from their ears. Law students from the inns of court, ladies in visards or masks who were quite evidently whores, prizing themselves into the galleries, while girls of lesser status worked the yard, crushed in among the groundlings. A supporting cast of pickpockets, coney-catchers, scroungers, idlers and ne'er-do-wells circulated yard and gallery, thriving in the atmosphere of noisy carelessness, dipping into a pocket or slitting the string of a purse. Wenches pressed through the throng with baskets of pippins, nuts and gingerbread on their plump arms, or glided through the crowd with flagons of ale as men parted respectfully to make way for the precious cargo. It's good, isn't it? Definitely a book to look out for. Globe by Catherine Arnold. Let's treat ourselves to one more little extract. Here she is then on special effects. Quote, they were basic but effective. Julius Caesar died in a pool of blood thanks to the pig's bladder of gore hidden inside his doublet. To create the atmosphere of a battle happening just off stage, drums were beaten and cannons fired. Londoners on the north bank of the Thames did not need to see the black flag flying from the roof of the globe. They could tell a tragedy was playing from the sounds of battle floating across the river. So, all in all, a grand success until the 29th of June, 1613, when a terrible tragedy occurred and the theatre was destroyed by fire. So there was going to be a performance of a new play by Shakespeare called All is True, about the life of Henry VIII, and to bring the crowds in, they'd made a lot of noise about how spectacular it was going to be. The audience was promised, quote, many extraordinary circumstances of pomp and majesty, and one of the special effects was to be the sound of cannon fire. They did stop short of actually firing an actual cannonball. They decided they would roll up some wadding into a little ball and put that in instead. Unfortunately, somehow the said ball caught some sparks, and by the time it was fired into the roof, a thatched roof, mind, it was a flame, and yes, the roof caught fire. We have a vivid description from one of the members of the audience, Sir Henry Wotton, who wrote of it as follows. Within less than an hour, the whole house burned to the very ground, wherein nothing did perish but wood and straw. Only one man had his breeches set on fire that would perhaps have broiled him if he had not with a provident wit put it out with a bottle of ale. So yes, amazingly, nobody was hurt. It's believed there were 3,000 people in the theatre that day, apparently only two exits, but they all escaped with their lives. The theatre was eventually rebuilt. It reopened in 1614, with a tiled roof this time, and it was the talk of the town. One Londoner wrote at the time, quote, I hear much speech of this new playhouse, which is said to be the fairest that ever was in England. But in fact, it wasn't going to be there all that long, because 30 or so years later, in the 1640s, along came those baddies, the Puritans, who took against theatre, banned in fact all forms of public pleasure, which they saw as being sinful, and theatres had to close. There was even a preacher who went to St Paul's Cross 
and blamed theatres themselves for causing the plague. They were wicked things. The sumptuous theatre, he said, houses, and this is a marvellous phrase, houses a continual monument of London's prodigality and folly. And in case you didn't quite catch his meaning, he went on to explain, the cause of the plague is sin, and the cause of sin are plays. Therefore, the cause of plagues are plays. So shut the theatres. Shakespeare himself had died only a couple of years after the New Globe was reopened, so thankfully he didn't live to see the preachers of the day banning the thing that perhaps he loved most, theatre itself. And that was pretty much the end of the globe then, until the 20th century, when a man of vision, one Sam Wanamaker, an American, came to London and could not believe that we weren't making more of our heritage. Shakespeare had worked and lived in these parts. Why weren't we shouting that from the rooftops? We should rebuild the globe. Great idea. Not everybody liked it. There had to be massive fundraising. The local council kept objecting. Apparently at one stage they said, no, 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 we can't do that. Shakespeare's elitist. How dreary is that? Anyway, he fought through and eventually it got done. I don't think it was actually fully finished until after he died. And it opened in 1997. So they had kept the Elizabethan look absolutely as far as possible. They'd used original documents from other theatres from the time. They'd looked carefully at the remains of the rose that had been dug up. They used a timber framework, thousands of Tudor-style iron nails. They used only techniques known to 16th century carpenters. They used as much of the same materials as possible. And yes, even in the 20th century, they were going to have a roof over the stage, but leave the arena itself open to the elements. It got off to a great start, and it's been a massive success ever since. The Daily Telegraph duly sent a reporter along to the opening night, and this is how the review opened. Up in heaven, Sam Wanamaker and William Shakespeare would have smiled, probably in that order. The Globe Theatre, or rather the replica of the Bard's wooden O, closed by the Puritans in 1642, reopened last night to popular triumph, 200 yards away from the original in Southwark by the Thames. There was not a single hitch. It was a hot night and the audience in the open-roofed playhouse was spared a drenching. He did have the odd little quibble. He wondered, for example, why when you'd gone to the trouble of building the theatre with materials as authentic as possible, you then did a production in modern costume. The production, by the way, was The Two Gentlemen of Verona. The Globe's director, Mark Rylance, had said that he wanted the audience to behave as far as possible as an Elizabethan audience would have done. And, as the reviewer explains, this happened. The audience, he writes, were whipped up ferociously by Rylance himself, playing Proteus. They hissed, booed, cheered and groaned, as if this was an end-of-the-peer show. So, when it comes to Shakespeare's legacy in London today, that's got to be top of the list. Unless, of course, you think that his real legacy is the words he left us and the plays. This would seem to be the view of Boris Johnson, who, in his book Johnson's Life of London, tried to sum up what it was that had made Shakespeare last across the centuries. He explains it as follows. Shakespeare opened windows for the audience into lives and worlds they'd never dreamed of. He turned those blank boards into the campfire before Agincourt, the Nileside death scene of Cleopatra, a spooky Scottish castle the dark and misty battlements of Elsinore, and the backlit balcony in Verona, where a beautiful young girl, played, ahem, by a boy, 
appeared to her forbidden lover. His dramas went global with astonishing speed. Rah, rah. Okay, so let's finish with a little roundup of places in London today where you can find, in inverted commas, Shakespeare. I would recommend, by the way, the various walking tours that you can go on. There's Shakespeare's London in various guises on offer from several of them. And when it comes to searching out the bits of which there's not very much left, I think they're really handy. Plus, of course, they're usually run by people who tell you wonderful stories en route. Okay, so we've talked about the Globe. That's obviously the main place, not least because you can see a theatre as it was in Shakespeare's day. You can go to a theatre and have a similar experience. And they have a really good museum attached with lots and lots of stuff about the plays of the day and how they were performed and the history in general. Really good. Recommend. Next door to the Globe is something I haven't mentioned yet, the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, a second theatre. Reflecting the fact that although most playhouses had outdoor arenas in Shakespeare's day, there was an idea too that if you could run to an indoor theatre, that would improve things greatly, because you'd be able to work all through the winter, for example. These little theatres tended to be more expensive than the outdoor ones, they attracted a richer audience, and they were splendidly decorated. So this one aims to replicate that. I've seen it described as a little jewel box. It's got rich colours, lots of gilding, usually lit by candles. A wonder to behold. Again, you can go on tours of that, or you can go and watch a performance there. Still in Southwark, just a few minutes' walk from the Globe, there's Southwark Cathedral, which was there in Shakespeare's day, although it was known as St Saviour's Church then. It's believed that Shakespeare attended services there, and so it's a fitting place to have a memorial to him. If you go inside, you'll find a full-size effigy of Shakespeare himself, standing under a stained-glass window, on which are depicted scenes from his various plays. We also know that his brother Edmund was buried in St Saviour's in 1607, probably a victim of the plague. Every year on April the 23rd, Shakespeare's birthday, and the day on which he died, there's a ceremony held. So a sprig of rosemary is placed into his hand for remembrance. There's a service and actors are invited to come and perform scenes from his plays or read some of his verse. You can also visit Old Theatre Courtyard, again just a few minutes from the Globe, that being the site of the original Globe, where today you will find a plaque on the wall and information panels explaining, for example, that it was here that around 15 of Shakespeare's plays were premiered. You can visit the site of the original Rose Theatre on Park Street, just under Southwark Bridge, and in Stony Street, you can go and have a look at the George Inn. The original was built in 1542, so was actually there in Shakespeare's day. It was replaced by this one in 1676, and the reason it's worth visiting is that it is the last galleried inn left in London, so it gives you an idea of the sort of inn where troops of actors performed before theatres were built the sort of arena in which Shakespeare himself probably first acted, possibly actually did act here, although I don't think that's known for certain. You can also find traces of Shakespeare on the other side of the river, because it's known that when he first came to London, he lived there. There are a number of churches still existing which he would have known, not in fact including St Paul's, because in Shakespeare's day it was old St Paul's on that site, the centre of the book trade, somewhere he would have known well, probably where he bought some source materials to read up stories he wanted to turn into plays, and somewhere where his own first editions were probably bought and sold. As for churches which he would actually have known, 
There is St Giles without Cripplegate, where his nephew Edward was buried in 1607. There's St Helen's, Bishopsgate, which was his parish church for a time, so it's assumed that he will have worshipped there. And then there's the Church of St Mary's Oldmanbury, which was destroyed in World War II, and of which now only the gardens remain. But because it's known that Shakespeare lived very nearby, there's a bust of him in the gardens to mark the site, and it's also known that two of his fellow actors are buried here, Henry Condell and John Hemming. Over at the Inns of Court, there's Middle Temple Hall. You usually have to go on a guided tour to get inside that, but if you can manage it, you are inside a building, built in 1572, in which the first recorded performance of Twelfth Night took place. The would-be lawyers who studied and lived there were always looking for entertainment, and that particular night, they decided to get a new play by that up-and-coming new theatre writer, Mr Shakespeare. And while you're in the vicinity, pop into Inner Temple Garden, which is where the scene from Henry VI was set. Henry VI Part One, that is, where various protagonists for the Wars of the Roses, which are about to happen, are taking a walk together, discussing things, and plucking either a red rose or a white rose to show which side they're on. Finally, then, there's Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey. Shakespeare isn't buried there. He's buried in his hometown of Stratford. Stratford-on-Avon in Warwickshire, that is. But, of course, of course, there's a Shakespeare memorial in Poet's Corner, in Westminster Abbey. So, that more or less rounds things off for today. I hope you've enjoyed meeting Chaucer and Shakespeare and finding out a little bit about London that they both knew. And while we're on a literary roll, let me announce that next week's episode is going to cover Dickens, another professional Londoner, another writer who set many of his works in London, a writer, in fact, who these days has his very own Dickens Museum in a house in Bloomsbury which you can visit and which, in fact, he inhabited himself. So we'll talk about his life in London, a few little extracts from his writings that give us an insight into London, visit the Dickens Museum, and actually also visit a second museum. I might leave that one as a surprise, but another institution with which he was very connected, which in fact he helped to support. So I hope you'll be listening in for that. And so I'm just going to sign off now. Thank you very much for your company today and hope that you'll be joining me next time too. Goodbye. <laughs>